that's on, that's recording, that's recording, and you're here. Yay. Hello, Lucy Best. Hello, Johnny. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for joining me on my podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great joy to have you here. Last time we worked together was in a, a small little theatre in... Hurstbridge. Uh, Hurstbridge. War- Warrandyte, Hurstbridge. Hurstbridge, Mushroom yeah. territory. It's gorgeous there. It is. It's absolutely gorgeous. They had no microphone. It was a small group of about 20, 30 and they're all hippies. All hippies. The right crowd to talk to about mushrooms and yes. <laughs> pets. And it was my crowd. I pick them around the corner there, so it's perfect. They, um, I think they knew the exact spot you were referring to Yeah, as well. probably. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we had a great time. There was no microphone, but you didn't need it. It was like conversational. I want to go back there during the Fringe and do a show. Yeah, yeah. Talk to Andrew. Yeah, Andrew Kelso. He yeah. runs... Yeah, he runs a good little gig there. I, I, I think I'd take my own mic. I think I needed a little bit of projection, but... Uh, I don't think you needed the projection, but I find sometimes just having something to do with your hands. I mm. mean, and I, I do gesticulate quite a lot, so I find I hold a glass of wine instead of holding a mic. Yeah, right. It's like, you know, busy hands. How did you go there? I had to leave to get to another gig in the city. Did you have a good show? I had so, so much fun, yeah. I headlined, so I went on for ages. I went on for like 23 minutes, which was That's fun. Good. So it's good to have plenty of time. That's good. Stand-up is... 20 plus like that's where you really find you know it's it's where you start running and you learn I think it's once you've got enough material that you can comfortably do that that's when you know you like you you're kind of comfortable Mm. it's it's sort of like it's which one comes first the chicken or the egg like you have to have enough material to do that long Mm. you have to have more than enough material don't you so you just see how it's going there was a woman in the audience there who afterwards said she was really pleased she hadn't brought her kid because I did like rude stuff, like it's pretty blue. But I was like, I would have done different stuff if there'd been a kid in the audience. <laughs> oh, would you change your approach? Yeah. Have a sip of tea uh, because I would uh, not change my style. It's like caveat emptor, you know? It's A lot of my bits I have, there's like a punchline and then there's like an extra punchline. And so there's still quite, like there's still like sex references and drug references and there's a punchline. And yeah. like it's still kind of, uh, you know, over 12s, I'd say. And okay. then there's the kind of the, the added MA15 or 18 plus. <laughs> wow. So you have your jokes edited to categories like PG, M, R plus. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I've done a couple of like um, corporate gigs. I had to work out what PG, what my PG yeah. material is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't do a lot of corporate gigs. I find it, uh, even though the money is very good, I just just cannot make them joyous enough to do but uh you work around that you can do that yeah it is challenging i mean i did one this wasn't a corporate gig it was a primary school fundraiser and uh so i was thinking i'll do stuff about being a mom and i'll do like you know like tailor it to the audience and when i arrived there was a dance floor and everyone was and the stage looked over the dance floor and then there were tables and chairs around the outside and everyone was like milling around, socializing at the bar, standing on the dance floor. And then the MC got everyone to sit down. Sit down now, there's a com- comedian coming on. So everyone, by the time they sat down, they were like, they were pretty hostile. Like, who's this woman that's made us sit down and stop socializing? Right. So I started off kind of like, you know, the stuff I was planning on doing. And then I made a joke about abortion and I got my first laugh. And I was like, okay, well, here we go. Away you go <laughs> so yeah. I just, I just completely laughing. scratched what I was going to do and did the most like sick stuff. Oh, that's great. Isn't that a joy when that happens? Yeah. You can do the hard shit, the stuff that you really enjoy that gets big laughs. Yeah, that makes people uncomfortable and then gets the big laugh. Yeah. Um, I learned a valuable lesson over the weekend. I did a show. I did my hour show called Visceral to about 20 people, and I found that they weren't going for the dirty stuff, and I had to abandon it. Um, and I came to the conclusion that when it's a small crowd, I think they're... I don't know, help me here, but they just didn't really go with the dirty stuff. They felt embarrassed or self-conscious or a bit nervous hearing someone talking about dirty things. Who were they? Just uh, in the city, just a gig, just, just sold people. tickets. Yeah, randomly sold tickets. Because I guess it also depends who they're with. Like if they're with, yeah, right. you know, if it's like you're there on your own or maybe with one other person, you don't kind of feel bolstered enough to laugh at this. Like, is this okay to laugh at this stuff? Yeah. Whereas if you're there with a bunch of mates... It's like a group of six mates. They're all going to egg each other on to laugh. True, true. And that happens in corporates as well. 
Like, you, I know when uh, I'm doing a big comedy club towards Christmas, I know it's a corporate event when tables are stifling their laughter. And I'm like, oh, shit, that's a corporate company table. No one wants to laugh at the dirty stuff. And in then front you of... try and crack them. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Absolutely. You do as well. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Where's the line? Where's the line? Yeah. Did you gig? Now, you're originally from uh, UK. Yeah. Did you gig in the UK? or No, no. you didn't at all. I acted. Oh, you acted yeah, in the UK? I didn't do comedy. I only started doing comedy four years ago this year. So you're only four years old in stand-up. Wow. Yeah, that's you're good. You've got a good presence on stage. I thought you oh, were a lot thanks. older. On stage. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You've got Thank a good... You. Uh, I think, oh, maybe that's your acting background. Like You just have this... Uh, you're well anchored on stage, if that makes sense. Yeah, I... Um Someone asked me recently why I don't move around more on stage because some comics do, don't they? They, you know, stride over this way and talk to the people in that corner and stride over that way. Well, maybe they need to. Whereas you, I just felt like you, you got a sense of belonging up there. You own the stage. You're comfortable. And I'm like, I wonder if that comes from your acting. Yeah, maybe. It's like it was a conscious decision though. Like I want to hold the space. And yeah, I think also because I'm small, I feel like if I just stay in one spot, then I can have the illusion of not being so small. Whereas if I go up to people, they can see that I'm small. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> So uh, you've uh, been gigging for four years, and uh, in that time you've done uh, how many solo shows? No, no solo shows. Except for this one now that you're doing. This one, in, the one that's opening soon is a, is a three-person show, but I'm, I've just started the registration process to do a solo show for Fringe this yeah. year. That'll Good. be my first solo show. I did actually, I like, I did like a trial solo show as part of a festival in 2019. Yeah. Is it themed? Like, are you noticing certain patterns where your material is? Yeah. yeah. So the show I just did for Comedy Festival with, with Nikki Barry was on motherhood. Yeah. It was called Motherfucked. Yeah. Um, and the show that I'm doing in Butterfly Club is about divorce. It's with Nikki Barry again and a woman called Justine Sless. And between us, we were married for, I think it's 76 years. 75, I read. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's about divorce. And then the one I'm doing for, for Fringe is called Disgraceful. And it's about, what's well, about... Essentially, it's about aging disgracefully, but I'm going to share stories from like when I was a kid and I was disgraceful and when I was a teenager and I got expelled and when I was naughty in my 20s. And yeah, so I tend, but I do tend to do that even with comedy sets or group, I'll come up with a theme. And so when I have that thing where I think, oh, this isn't landing, I'm going to change to something else, I'll go, you know, like I might have a bit about masturbation, but I also have mentioned that I have a dog. And I think, oh, they're not laughing about the masturbation, but they did laugh about the dog. So I'll just do some more stuff about my dog and my cats and, you know, like. I do have like groups of, of bits, mm. but for the shows, I'm definitely going on themes. Did you, in your opinion, um, having been married, will you get married again? No. And it's, um, oh, this sounds really discourteous to my marriage. I went into it mm. believing all the things, but I also didn't particularly, like I wasn't one of these girls that wanted to get married when I grew up. Like it was... We moved overseas together. It's kind of like, well, we, we'll get married then. And I believed we were going to stay together forever. How, how long were you married for? 17 years. Wow. It's a pretty good effort. That's fantastic. Um, but no, I wouldn't bother. Why bother? Can I, can I push you further as to why? Because like, I came out of a seven-year relationship and I'm very reluctant to get married. Like, I'm, I don't know. I just feel it's... Uh, I just feel a no within me. Yeah. I, I don't, and I'm just curious to explore So I mean, why you won't. You know, if I want to make a joke about it, I'd say it's too expensive to get divorced again. Mm. Um, but that is a part of it. Like the un, you know, the uncoupling of a relationship is hard enough without the complication of like the being a divorce and the legal stuff. And yeah, yeah. and as, as a woman, like I didn't ever, I always went by Lucy Best. I always continued using my name, obviously, because it's a great name. But I officially changed my name, and that was partly because it was before we'd had kids, but we, we'd got a mortgage together. There was all these reasons, and then, like, we were going to have kids, and so I changed my, We'd been married six years before I changed my name officially, and to change my name back on official documents was awful. Like, I cried at the bank. I cried at Vic Rhodes, because everywhere you go, they're like, well, why, are you, why do you need to change your name? And you have to tell the story to these strangers, and it's just like, so that, but obviously that's a choice. I mean, if anyone I knew was getting married, I'd say, don't change your name. Mm. or both change your name because men just you know men don't have to deal with all that admin um yeah and i mean we had kids so i think even if we hadn't been married there'd be a lot of legal stuff to get through but it just felt so much more complicated and more painful 
to get through being a legal document and being and we'd got married in England and then we'd lived overseas before we came to Australia and so there's all this like dealing with the paperwork and finding old passports and having to dredge up all this stuff like to prove your paper history of who you are and who you were and what your marriage was and it's like it's hard enough just to go this thing that I once thought was going to last forever is done mm. without having to talk to lawyers and bureaucracy and so it's the bullshit it's the bullshit it's the bullshit yeah um, because you're you're with a partner now, like you're very happy. Like I've seen him at gigs; he's always smiling. Yeah, but that's pretty recent. We met in lockdown. Oh, that's great! <laughs> yeah. How'd you meet in lockdown? Dating apps through Facebook. Nice. Someone set up a Facebook group um, called Date Date on Zoom Find My Muse, and it was for artists, single artists. And uh, yeah, he we were both on the group, and then he friend requested me, and then we went for a walk and. Within your 5Ks? It was it was th- four days before the 5K rule came in. Nice, just got in. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, there's a new rule. Are we going to be intimate partners? <laughs> yes, yeah. So they fast you. Interesting way to introduce, you. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Hurry up, guys. You've got to be intimate. Four yeah, days to go. It. Oh, that's great. Yeah, um, yeah, and and we've talked about it. Like, he's he's been married before as well, and he said, would if do I think that if we hadn't have been married before, we'd... we'd talk about it and I was like well yeah we probably would because there is that ah it's gonna be forever and but um it just feels like an unnecessary amount of admin to bother with the whole wedding bit yeah it's like um the Disney romantic bubble has burst and you're left with the reality of the situation getting married is all of that rigmarole you just mentioned before in the um pulling out of a marriage so why bother yeah and it doesn't change the fact that you're connected uh, spiritually and emotionally with someone and invested in their, um, uh, you know, in the relationship. So what's the bother? Yeah. And I think uh, maybe some people like the wedding, but you could ha- you could have a party just to celebrate. In fact, I, know, I have a friend in England who did that. They had a... Yeah, I've heard that's a growing thing. Uh, it's a party without an actual marriage. It's just a, yeah, a celebration. Yeah. So your friend had that. one as well? Yeah. My friend Paul. Um... Yeah, like, you know, they had the catering, they did the speeches, they did the whole thing. Mm. Yeah, why not? So you've got uh, two kids, one's a 15-year-old boy. 15-year-old boy and a 13-year-old non-binary person. Non-binary. All right. What's, how does that, like, I don't get that. So how does that, what do you do? So when they were like um, seven or eight, like they were still pretty young, they met someone who was trans and said, I think I might be trans. And I said, oh, well, I don't think you are. Like, I think if you're trans, you feel like you're trapped in the wrong body. Like, you know, from what I read and understood and had heard from trans people I knew, was it, it's pretty torturous to feel like this is the wrong body. This doesn't fit with how I see myself in my mind. And we talked about it for a while. And then my older kid went to high school and joined the standout club, which is like the minus 18 who do work with LGBTQIA plus youth. It's their thing that they facilitate in high schools. And so he came back with all this vocabulary around gender fluidity and non-binary and transgender and what does it all mean? And, and yeah, eventually Lamb came up with um, that they decided they were non-binary. So they don't particularly think that they're a boy or a girl and they're just them. And they really are. They're the most one of the most unique individual people you're ever going to meet. They're just, yeah, they're, they've got all sorts of other things. Like they're on the autism spectrum and they're diagnosed ADHD and they're like a maths genius. And, oh, wow. Yeah, just um, and incredibly artistic. Like was drawing, you know, like drawing hands is one of the hardest things you can draw. They could draw like amazing hands from the age of about 11. I didn't know that. Yeah. So dr- the anatomy of a hand yeah, is very really difficult hard. to draw. Yeah. yeah right. So they've always just been really unique. So it's kind of like, oh, here's just another way that you don't fit with the rules that society makes and the, the binary that society's trying to inflict on. So I really respect it. It has been a bit of a challenge. It's been a bit of a challenge for like um, older family members getting their head around the language, saying they and them. The, t- the, the they and them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because um, I'm sure they're trying, but it's just we're, we're a product of our vocabulary in this generation. Yeah. So a lot of times we say, hey, guys, we're also inclusive of girls yeah. but it's just guys you just spit it out yeah i mean even dude like i call people dude and I'm yeah like, oh, sorry is that gender it's just the vernacular it's incorrect yeah it really makes you think about that as well when you've got a kid who notices because they're feeling kind of not oppressed but they're, they're just aware of like um you know like uh, usb we went to buy an extension and it was like a male female it said on it male female yeah. usb extender 
And they were like, why isn't it just input and output? Why isn't it? And I was like, yeah, that's true. Why, like, why do we put gendered language on things? Yeah, I, I came to terms with that when I was, yeah, trying to find equipment to plug into this. Yeah, there were male and female sockets. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it just, just developed to yesteryear, just yeah. the way it was. I'm sure it'll change. Everything changes, right? Yeah, that's it. Language evolves, which is one of the frustrations with the older relatives going, yeah. but they, them is a plural yeah. pronoun and like language evolves. And actually in Shakespearean times, they and them and thee and they were all singular or plural. Yeah, right. Anyway, I sent lots of articles <laughs> explaining how language yeah. evolves. So you're a very supportive parent. And I, I kind of, what's, um, what's your ex-husband, what's his attitude towards? It took him a lot longer to get on board. Yeah. I, mean, I think he tried, but it just, he couldn't get his head around it. it. Yeah. Well, that's it. It's wrapping his head around the concept. Yeah. And he's not like, I'm bisexual and I've got like a whole queer community that I'm part of and most of my friends are, and I've got trans friends and, you know, like, I guess I live in a world where that's not that unusual, whereas he is in the corporate world and quite conservative and it's not yeah he wouldn't have any friends I'd imagine he wouldn't have many friends if any that would kind of get it and be on board with it so if he was referring to his child as they them then the friends would be like what do you mean you're talking about both your kids like I can imagine it would be harder for him mm. to just introduce that vocabulary and talk to people about it mm. but he's supporting and he's trying to come around he's trying yeah <laughs> it is hard but it's just, you just got to have an open mind. I mean, I understand now about transgender. I, I didn't years ago, but I do know now it's like there's, they're just trying to synchronize their spirituality with their physical self. And it's, it's quite, yeah, it's quite sad that journey and to bridge that gap. Yeah. So I can imagine, like, I can't imagine, but it would just be fucking frustrating to um, look in the mirror and I see a girl staring at me when I'm Johnny. Yeah. I'm a boy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I get that. But I do wonder about, because non-binary is a relatively new, a new thing that people understand. And I do wonder how many people got kind of forced into becoming the opposite gender of what they were assigned at birth because it was like, yeah. well, there are two. So if you're not that, like, you know, you're not Gina, you're, you think you're Johnny, then you must, like, let's do you know, reconstructive surgery and let's completely transition you from female to male and all that stuff. And actually, I wonder how many people just go, this just doesn't fit for me and I just reject your binary, you know. Mm. We'll see. Like, again, it's something that can evolve as as we all evolve. But I'd like to think a lot of people will just reject being assigned a gender. Eventually. Yeah. Mm. You think? I think that won't go away, though. I think there will always be genders. Yeah, I mean, I guess, well, we'll see. Like I was thinking about when I was a kid, I was a tomboy and my brother who's three years older than me. He was really into like his appearance and he wore like cover up and it was, we couldn't walk past a shop without him adjusting his hair in the window. Whereas I was the one like trying to climb things and mm. up a tree and falling and always hurting myself and stuff. And it was this whole like Lucy's a tomboy and Pete's effeminate. And yeah, it, it, wouldn't it be nice if no one had even bothered, like we were just being ourselves and no one would have needed to put labels on that. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I was cut from a different cloth. My mum pretty much raised me because my father was in factories all the time. So I was, uh, it was okay for me to cry. It was okay for me to talk about my feelings. It was okay for me to write poetry. It was okay for me to express myself artistically. Uh, I dare say if I was uh, brought up more so by my father, who if he stayed home and my mum worked more so, then I think um, I maybe wouldn't have been allowed to cry. Yeah. Uh, and that would have made me rigid and you get this detachment from your emotions. And uh, I think a lot of men kill themselves because of yeah. that reason. They're not able to touch, uh, be in touch with their own emotions and express themselves to their friends for fuck's yeah. sake. And a lot know? of domestic violence comes from that as well. Not being able mm. to process. I've got these feelings, what I do with them. And they just come out in like an explosion. Yeah. And they just give themselves fucking angst and stress and cause they're not talking. Yeah. Was your dad pretty conservative? Yeah, he's uh, it was a Greek, just a Greek guy from a village in Greece after the war had ravaged Europe. He left and came to uh, Melbourne and worked in a factory. So he's just a, a, a simpleton, I guess. So just old school values. But now, you know, um, as he developed his life in Australia, he just realized slowly, slowly his, his horizons would broaden. Um, 
but I'm very different to my father, very, very different. Like I'm, you know, it's fine for me to uh, not get married and, and cry and write poetry and express myself to how I feel to a girl and so forth. I Don't bottle it up because bottling it up gives you heart disease and you just end up yeah. fucking dying. Yeah. So do you think he's softened as he got older? Yeah, he has because he's he's got grandchildren now. I was going to say, so many people of our generation, I reckon, observe their dad's being much more engaged with their kids, like as a grandfather, than they were with us when we were kids. And I'm sure it's partly because they've got more time because yeah. they work, but I'm sure it's also because they've softened emotionally. Like they've they've been through a lot and they've mm. kind of gone, they've mellowed and gone, oh yeah, I can like let this kid sit on my lap and cuddle me and not feel like I'm being too soft and we have to go and yeah. kick a footy or do yeah. something. Or... Were you like that with your parents growing up? Were you uh, connected to your parents like that? Or was it a different childhood, uh, detached or close or... So I Disney. think the short answer is I was close. Well, definitely not Disney. So I had uh, two households. My parents had, had separated when I, by the time I was one and a half. My one mom, and a half. My mum moved over here to Australia. So I came and visited. Me and my brother used to come and visit. And my mum had remarried. So she left because she was she hooked up with an Aussie guy. Um, and he had a kid. And then his kid got brought back here. And so they followed. And we would come out. So we had two families. And we were mostly with my dad and my stepmom. My dad worked a lot. But we had like uncles and aunts, like we had a big, like we had cousins the same age as us and we had like a village. I would say I was raised by a village. Mm. And when, like, I'm close to all my family, but I said to my dad, oh, it was a few years ago now, but I said to my dad, you know, thanks, thanks for raising me. Like, I think it was after I'd had kids and I was reflecting on my parent. I've learned so much about parenting from you. And he said, I can't take any credit for it. I didn't do much. And I was like, well, you provided the village. Like you chose the people mm. who did do it. So yeah, he wasn't kind of, I remember once I wanted to talk to him about my allowance and he's got his diary out. I was like, Dad, I need to talk to you about, like, I need more than £10 a month pocket money, whatever it was. And he got his diary out and made an appointment with me. And at the time I thought, like, what the fuck? I have to make an appointment to speak to my own dad. But now I realise what he was doing was saying, this is important, I'll make time for it. Right. Because he never had any time and he, yeah. Yeah, right. So he was, he wasn't cold. His dad was very cold. He was, he was affectionate and loving, but he was busy. Yeah. But he had, you know, he's a bit of a hippie and lots of good people around that we were palmed off to in a good way. <laughs> yeah. It's very important. Um, yeah. Having a good childhood is so fucking fundamental. Like, I remember my dad in an apron getting teased by his friends in the kitchen when I was a kid. And when his friends left, my dad said, it's perfectly okay to wear an apron and help out your mum when she's working. You both have to contribute to the running of the household. You're both an equal team. You're both team players. There's no such thing as she does this and I do that. Yeah, that's great. And it just changed my whole psychology of what it is to be in a family, in a household. Yeah, so that was, it was crucial, yeah. Yeah, and we were very much, so I've got, so there's my older brother and then we've got half brother and half sister from my dad's second marriage. And we're really, like when I go and visit, you know, this is the longest that I've not been because of COVID. I was supposed to go over last year, but... When I go, I'm really aware that we're really in sync. Like, uh, like last time I went, I took my kids over, and my stepmom's getting dinner out the oven, and I'm getting the cutlery, and my brother's getting the plates, and my sister's lighting some cat. Like, it was like we all know what needs to be done, and we all just everyone just goes, "All oh, right, we'll do all the things." And there's no like, mm. "You have to do this, you have to do this," or "Please, can you do this?" And someone has to say thank you. It's like there's no pleases and thank yous. We're all just working together, mm. so that we get to eat dinner together. And it was yeah, I was really conscious of how well like in sync we were. It was really lovely despite the fact that I live on the other side of the world. I don't see them as much as I'd like to. Yeah. Did you live in the UK for a while? Yeah, yeah, I grew up there. So yeah, I left you grew when up... I was 25. That's right, yeah, because your accent's still strong. You've still got a good accent. Uh, I lived there for 10 years. I was based in South London near a wonderful family-friendly football club called Millwall. Oh, yeah. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, I'd never experienced proper football, and it was an eye-opener. I came to the conclusion that a lot of people just don't go to the football to watch football. They go to have fights. Yeah, yeah. But it was still fun. For sure. Um, but that was South London, uh, jellied eels in the afternoon at the pub and then off to the game. But I loved it. I was there for 10 years and I developed my stand-up there all over the UK. So that's where I cut my teeth. Cool. That's where I essentially learned how to do stand-up 20 minutes and over. Um, and I found it a wonderful place. I found it... Uh, the variety of cultures coexisting was not cultures, just uh, 
classes of people. So like I would go to West London, uh, the West Country, and it's all cricket, county cricket clubs and very proper people. Then I'd go north to Birmingham and it was uh, just rough as guts and you'd have to like drop down and like deal with hecklers and all this. And they were only like 60, 70 kilometers apart. Yeah, yeah. It was bizarre. And the accents, you can go five miles and people talk completely differently. So strange. Like if that was here, people in Perth, you wouldn't be able to understand them. Yeah. That's how far away it is. But yeah, the accent was just brutal. So different. Did you do it? You did no stand up in the UK. So I did, last time I visited, I did a gig. Yeah. But I haven't, I didn't, you know, I wasn't part of my, when I was living there. Yeah. Last time I visited, I did a gig in Kensington. And yeah. And they said, come back. And I was like, I'm here for 10 days. I'm visiting from Australia. Did you like it? Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. Kensington's a lovely area. So was it uh, just an open mic? Was it, it was a in prone? a pub. It was, was it was it um, good co- good crowd. Yeah, it was a good crowd. It wasn't a paid gig, but it was you know, curated. It was a curated line. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, because the open mics there are brutal. The curated gigs are pleasurable. Have you done, have you been, have you done gigs in America? Yeah, I gigged in New York. And you have to pay to go to it? Yeah, they had... Um, 4.30 sign-ups in the afternoon and you'd pay like five or ten bucks to get on stage and you would do uh, I remember doing that for about a month and I did that for a month and then got promoted to a Monday night audition and then from the Monday night audition you'd they'd pick a few of us and you'd go through to like a Friday night five-minute spot that you had to so yeah. how long were you in New York about six months. Wow. Mm. I was I was deciding whether to stay in New York or go to London. And I came back from New York and I realized it was a class system. It's the haves and have nots. Uh, you either got, you if you're famous, you can walk right into the clubs. If not, it's going to be really difficult. Whereas then I bumped into a comedian called Brendan Burns. Yeah, I've heard of him. And he was uh, based in the UK and he said that they reward just talent you don't have to be famous in the uk so i tried going to the uk and then i did a series of gigs there open spots and yeah and i progressed comfortably without uh having to go back and oh you've got um no you're not famous enough and so it was an easy experience yeah and i felt uh just a better connection with uk audiences um i don't know what it is maybe it's summer bay or neighbors but just this like cultural, cultural exchange, like first cousins. Yeah, yeah. It just felt similar. That's the good. humor, it just resonated, felt more comfortable. I think New York felt a little bit more alien. Or maybe I was just scared of it because it was so different. And how come you were able to live in London for 10 years? Have you got... Greek passport. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I was... Because um, Yan- of the EU. Yeah, I was well, Yanni. Yeah, no more. Yanni Katsoulis <laughs> with a Greek flag. And yeah, there was a warning saying, don't stay in Greece longer than three months or you'll have to go to the military. I was like, fuck, I do not want to be on a Turkish wow. border somewhere <laughs> aiming a gun at the Turks. Like, that would be frightening. Um, so yeah, so I, I enjoyed it. I loved it. But th- there's nothing like gigging here at, uh, uh, in Melbourne. Um, there's just so many comics in Melbourne, though. I feel like per capita, we've got the most comics of anywhere in the whole world. There's, there's so many comics fucking everywhere now. I rem- I've been going for 19 years. When I oh. started, I remember telling people I was a comedian and it was always, oh, wow. Now you tell people you're a comedian, you're like, oh, yeah, I did that once. Or, oh, my sister my does cousin, that. Yeah. My cousin does that. It's, um, it's part of, it's just another hobby now. And I think everyone... You know, it's easy to do, so people are... Which is good for us, because it means there's more gigs, right? But there's It a also lot of means there's gigs. a lot of shit people, so we yeah. stand out better. Yeah. Exactly. If you want to try some new material, go and do an open mic with a bunch of people who are mostly not going to be very good, and everyone goes, oh my God, he's amazing! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done any, like, horrible rooms? Like, horrific situations? The only reason I say that is I'm setting up to... It just came into my head now... There's a gig and I don't want to poke fun at the promoter because I'm sure he's doing lovely things and, you know, just 
I just couldn't. There's a gig at Hungry Jack's. <laughs> I knew you were gonna... Fucking hell. Like, that must be so fucking challenging. What? Like, like it's I don't just... know why, but. people, most people aren't even going to be in there long enough for you to do five minutes. They yeah. just go up to the counter, they get the thing that they know they want, that they always get, and then they leave. Or they just go and use the toilet. Yeah. I've heard of some fucking tough situations to be in. I've been in some tough situations on stage, but I don't. I could not imagine gigging at a Hungry Jack's. No. With fryers going off and buzzers and beeps and people just looking at you. Like even doing gigs in a restaurant where people didn't know there was going to be comedy on is hard enough, but they're there like long enough that they're going to order food, sit at the table, maybe have a glass of wine. Yeah. Hungry Jack's. Like I just. <laughs> Yeah, I can't get my head around that. I did a gig in, in, I think it was somewhere in the UK. It was like curry, dot, 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 and comedy. So people were there for the curry night, and the comedy was just a byproduct. And, yeah, have you had that look from an audience? We're like, what the fuck? Yeah, they're like, what is doing? I want to talk to my friends. Why is this happening? Why is this guy talking? (laughs) Like, what is happening? Oh, God. But it just, it makes, um, I don't know. That's what I wanted to talk about with you with uh just comparing acting with stand-up, do you, because you actually, uh, you can do Shakespeare plays, right? That is fucking hard. Oh, when you go to school in England, you learn Shakespeare. How many years did you do drama? Well, I did it all the way through school and then I did a drama degree. Oh, wow. So you're properly trained. <laughs> properly trained. So you could step into Neighbours and just yeah. crush. Fuck. That's that's a good act. If any neighbours producers are listening, <laughs> you want some weird English woman to just randomly come and live in the street. <laughs> um, how does it compare to stand up? The buzz. I ask actors this all the time. Oh, it's it's all. And now you've put it that way. I feel like I'm a junkie for adrenaline or something because. I didn't act for a while, like like me and my husband lived in the Caribbean before we moved here and I hadn't done any acting. And I remember when I first got back on stage, like my first scene, and it, you know, it was comedic acting as well, so it was like, I had to come on in this kind of like renaissance gown with a big high collar but a chastity belt. And it was that moment where the audience catch up with what's happening and they started laughing and I just, inside me I'm just going like, fuck yeah, like this is the best feeling. Really? Yeah. And as so, good as stand up? So so now it's like now with stand up you're like constantly chasing that, like, love me, laugh at me. Really? Get, get on board with what I'm saying. Um, it's harder, like it's because you're yourself. I mean, you're telling you're not being everything or everything about you, but you're you're being yourself, so that's a lot more nerve wracking. But then when you get them when you get the audience on side, it's like, fuck yeah. Really? <laughs> I'm I'm worth something. So the drug you get from stand up is better than the hit you get from performing as an actor on stage. Definitely. For Definitely. me. For me, yeah. Yeah. That it's more immediate. Co- it's more obvious. You know, especially if you do, like if you were doing it's all you. straight acting, you don't know they've loved it until the end. Whereas with comedy, you're getting the constant feedback. Like, I'm just very needy. I just need to constantly be reassured that they're having a good time, that they like me, that I'm funny, or, hmm. or that they're listening. You know, even that, even just they've stopped talking and they're paying attention. You're like... Got them in my palm of my good hand. Is that? The pin <laughs> yeah. drop silence moment. Yeah. I tell a lot of my friends that's the joy in stand up. I do enjoy the massive laughs. Who doesn't? But I especially enjoy the silences where they're tuned in. Yeah, and then but that and then the, like the, the the combo, the the main course, and then the dessert is like that silence where they're tuned in, and they might even be kind of you know especially like I do talk about a lot of personal stuff on stage, so they might be like mm. worried or you know what's going to happen and then you do your punchline and as it turns out I'm fine look at me everything's fine and you make the joke and they like they share that experience that relief with you mm. yeah yeah it's huge rush <laughs> absolutely have you ever done a piece of monologue on stage as an actor where yeah yeah where you have to uh cry yeah yeah can years tu- ago years ago can you turn it on like how hard is it to yeah. get to that stage where I did, well, I was in Romeo and Juliet a couple of years ago, in 20, end of 2018, and I played Romeo's mum. So I, it was, you know, there's the whole scene at the end of the funeral scene. I was crying on stage. And, I'm, and I remember when it started, I'm like, oh, look at me, I'm crying. Really? So, well, there's this voice in your head detached from Yeah, well, friends said, how do you cry? Song. And I was like, I just think, oh, my God, my son's dead. 
<laughs> is that called method acting? Well, it's not because I wasn't thinking, Jude, my son is dead. I wasn't. I was just thinking, this is how would you feel if your son died? You know, like maybe just being a very empathetic person. Like I just, you know, if if you were going through something tough, I'd think, oh no, how would I feel if I was going through that? And you just, I, don't, I guess, you just ramp it up enough on stage. Is it emotionally draining after a monologue like that where you have to cry? Like, you, you can't just like, woohoo, fucking nailed it, high five. And is it just like, oh, I need time to just like find me again? Just well, I think time, bit. regrouping time would be good. But um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, you don't tend to get it. You know, you do your curtain call or you, you're backstage changing into the next costume or remembering like running around the back to get on the stage at the other side. Or Sounds like stress. Yeah, but it's fun. Yeah. And it's the, one of the things that's really fun about it is being part of a you know cast and crew like you're part of a team and they're all, you're all friends during the course of the run. It's less Whereas lonely with comedy, than you're on up. your own. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is with comedy. Well, when I first started in comedy, I remember saying to someone like, if I like, I had a friend who was an actress who's the same height as me, same kind of size as me, and also English. We were in a play together here in Melbourne, and I was like, oh, we're in a play together, so we're best friends while we're in the play together. But going forward, we're going to be going for the same roles. <laughs> Whereas with comedy, it's like everyone, there's room for everyone. Mm. But there's also not room for everyone because there's so many comedians. And sometimes it's like, we, that, you know, we've got two women on the lineup tonight, so we don't need you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That happens. I have no idea, by the way, what it's like to be a female comedian. I've got no idea. I don't pretend to know, especially with what happened with Eurydice. I've, yeah. I've never had, you know... I've never, ever thought, am I going to get home after a gig? Like, I'm just, I'm a, yeah, I'm lucky to be a bloke. I don't have to think of that, you know? Yeah, I think the thing is we all we all thought it already, and then that happened, and it was like, see? Mm. It can't, you know, it was, it was your worst nightmare coming true. And uh, whenever someone dies, you always do that thing of like, but I just saw her the other day, you know, but we all were like, you know, I'd seen her two nights before, and oh, we really? had a hug, and, you know, like... See you soon, anyway, because I was I was I think I was leaving a gig on my way to another gig, and we had like a quick hug, and and every, yeah, and people who saw her that night, like it's you just can't make sense of it, and you can't make sense of it when it is the thing you fear the most. So is that it doesn't play into my my equation when I go to a gig, but do you look at where you're performing, what time you finish, access to your car, yep. leaving the gig? I don't. I'm yeah. It's another world for me. Is you process all those yeah. thoughts? The the winter after, so she was killed in June, which obviously you know days are shorter. And I remember the following June, I just started getting Ubers to every single gig because I was like, I can't, I don't, I can't walk anywhere. I can't get on a tram. I can't park my car and have to walk two blocks to my car. Like I was freaking out. Fuck. And then I was like, I'm spending a fucking fortune on yes. Ubers. I mean, you know, silver lining that came out of it all was that we. People were much more open to like, can I walk you to your car or should we carpool? Like people were much more open to thinking of that. A lot more male comics. And I'd only been doing comedy like not even a year when it happened. So I I suppose I didn't see the other side of it. I was just very aware that there was a lot more men going like, you know, do you want me to walk you to your car or on a Facebook? You know, sometimes the room runner will start a Facebook group with everyone who's on and people will go, oh, I'm coming from Coburg North, so does anyone need a lift and stuff like that? Like that was really... I guess, silver lining of people thinking about it more. But, I mean, women have always had to worry about that stuff. Mm. Yeah, I used to, I used to, wherever possible, get public transport. But you don't even feel safe for public transport. Do you feel comfortable at gigs? Sometimes. Oh, mostly. I mean, I suppose now I know a lot of people, but in the early days, it varies. Depends where you are. And there's a lot of, like, there's a group of, like, younger male comics who probably just don't talk to me because I'm, like, their mom or whatever. But Really? There's this whole kind of... No way! Like, you're not being friendly or, you know, no like, way. I'm waiting on the corner for my Uber to come and they're on the other corner all chatting to each other. It's like, why don't you come and wait with me? Or, you know, and I suppose, you know, I should just be more confident and go, hey, guys, and just, can I stand with you or whatever? But, yeah, when I was new and you kind of don't know anyone and you feel shy and then there's also that attitude of, groups of men because it is predominantly male yeah yeah it is it's changing though it is definitely changing uh, i think what's changing about is where become i'm becoming more aware you know so like i just didn't know 
that it was difficult for women to get home from a gig. I just didn't process it. Wasn't aware. I just I was like, oh, I don't know. They just got home like we go home. It's fucked. What? You just walk down the street, get to your car. No, no. I mean, especially different. like I'm, I'm not even five foot. Mm. I was once walking down Swanson Street and a guy picked me up, just Holy. lifted me up and carried me off. And I was with a friend and she ran up behind him and kicked him in the balls. Holy fuck! I was like, someone can just walk up and pick me up. <laughs> like, did he think you were a Pokemon Go? What the fuck was that? I was just drunk. Wow. Holy fuck! And what happened? Did he just put you down and? Oh, then... my friend kicked him in the balls and then we ran off. But... Jesus. But, and, you know, Eurydice was not tiny and she would have put up a fight. Like, all that stuff that goes through your head. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I do. I've, I've always been conscious of that stuff, getting home from anywhere, especially after dark. Mm. Can I change gears a bit? You yeah. said something before that um, you lived in the Caribbean. Is that the paradise that people ascribe to it? Like, is it... Just gorgeous weather, coconuts, reggae, chilled out. Lots of weed. Wonderful life. Uh, parts of it. I mean, there's not like. Or can you strip it down and bring it back down to reality a bit for me? What there is was, the Caribbean? So for like? me, well, so the things I missed, I missed the seasons. Right, yeah. And because there weren't, you know, it's just hot or hot and wet, basically. Yeah. That was the two seasons. And because there weren't seasons, and I'm not like, um, you know, as you can. I'm not like a like a fashion victim or anything. I don't like follow fashion, but you know, like, like no boots and skirt. Like there's things about seasons, like as well as the leaves and the flowers. And I love I love nature. Like seeing the changes of the seasons or enjoying a crisp cold morning versus a lovely hot evening where you can sit outside or whatever. I missed all of that, but I also missed like just having change and like getting my boots and my scarves out when the weather gets colder and you know buying new clothes every now and then because. It's, you know, it's a whole new year or whatever. You just wore the same, you just wore like shorts and singlets the whole time. Yeah, I do believe a transience of seasons is necessary. Uh, winter always makes me go inward. I reflect more. Um, I read more. I take mushrooms. I Yeah, yeah you need that. It, you do. It's the inwards and summer is the outwards. Yeah. Introvert versus extrovert. Yeah. It's good. Growth, regrowth. And there was a lot of people there, like a lot of the expats were friends with each other. So it was a bit of kind of, I mean, hedonism, which of course can be fun sometimes, but sometimes it was like, surely there's more to life than just getting fucked up on boats every Sunday afternoon. Like, of course. Where were you living in the Caribbean? In the Cayman Islands. Oh, wow. So there was, um, there was, it was funny. There was people who worked like in law and finance. And then there was like people who worked in hospitality and scuba divers and all that crowd. And yeah, like the kind of the haves and the have nots, I guess. But mm. yeah. Did but yeah, it was fun. fun. Yeah, it was super fun. Yeah, super fun. Yeah. It was fun, but there was a lot that I missed. Yeah, like when we first came back here, we got here in October and then it wasn't a particularly hot summer and then like autumn came around. You know, I guess I was acclimatized to hot weather, so I didn't think much about the summer and then autumn came around. I was like, yay, autumn. Yeah, right. Um, autumn's my least favorite season ah. because it's, I, I'm more- Mushroom season. <laughs> I know, I do know, but it's like summer is gone. And winter is coming. It's that in between. I love autumn and spring. The transitions. I love the change. Yeah. All the colours. And it that really good. like sometimes that like I mean, even if you haven't done mushrooms, like the like a, a yellow like a tree that's the leaves have gone yellow is really like glowy. Yes. Like yeah. it's quite trippy although. It is, it is. I wanted to talk about um the weed you gave me once at a gig. <laughs> you gave me like you had a vapor machine? And you gave me, was that weed uh, homegrown? Yeah. Wow, it was so different. It was mellow and giggly. It wasn't sledgehammer hydroponic THC, which just crushed my head. It was so good. Yeah, we can't talk about that. <laughs> no? <laughs> well, yeah, no. Uh, can we? Do you know we talk about that stuff? Yeah, I, anything goes. All right. Yeah. That's why I said to you, okay, if you don't yeah. want to talk about something, you don't. But yeah. Um, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah. Good old homegrown. It's another thing that's great about living in Australia. It's conducive to growing your own. Um, and you process it and you can vape it. Is there a process? What's the process to get so it to So it's a dry a vape, which means it's a herb vape. So you can put herbs in it. You don't have to use an oil or anything. All oh, right. 
Mm. And when they, you know, when they sell it to you, it's like, you know, so you can smoke lavender and rosemary. Right. Or <laughs> marijuana. Yeah. <laughs> Who's going to smoke lavender? Why no. would you smoke lavender? Smoke some chamomile tea. Fucking hell. <laughs> just want to flush my toilet with lavender in the air. That's about it. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So, and it's better for your lungs, allegedly. Yeah. They don't know yet. They don't know, but thus far... It's a thumbs up to vaping. Yeah. What do you reckon about eating it? Yeah, I, I enjoy eating it. I don't do it too much anymore. I used to do it a lot. Now I do it a couple of times a year. Only because um, I got just uh, ran me down too much. I just ended up like too lazy. So now if I do it, I like to eat it. Um, it's more on the body, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And... Um, if I have a joint, I'll have a couple of drags. Like what you gave me was perfect because I went on stage straight after and started ad-libbing and riffing. Yeah, I had great. a lot of fun. It was great. Had the perfect amount because anything too much, too much more than what I had, I go inward and sentences start to race away from my editing department and I can't sync them up to get them out. My tongue just gives up and says, I'm out. And then shit comes out. Can you gig before? Can you smoke a joint and gig? Yeah. I think some of my best gigs have been high. Really? Which is which is bad. Is, like, is there a level of high? Like, for example, to give you, um, to, to, to relate it to alcohol, half a beer, I'm good. Three, four beers, uh-uh, I'm slurring. Is there a limit with marijuana for you? Yeah, probably. Uh, Optimum. I just, I think I just know, like I just would, I'd just be hesitant. Like if I was smoking some, I had, didn't know how strong it was. I would, not, I'd just, like you say, just have a couple of drags and see how and you go. Suss it out. Yeah, but I, I um, did a gig at a festival in, in 2019, and um, for some reason I decided it'd be a really good idea to drop a pill before <laughs> I went on stage. <laughs> well, like MDMA. Yeah. Oh, fuck. And and literally, like, <laughs> like the the stage manager came, like the guy who was running the gig came to tell me that, like, okay, you ready? And I had that like. I need a shit. And they're like, and it's <laughs> yeah. hit. And I'm, and I'm like, just give me two minutes. And I'm like, I run to a portaloo. <laughs> Didn't need to shit. <laughs> Came back, got on stage. I was like, oh, fuck. And I just told the audience. And they were, you know, it was a festival, so they didn't give a shit. And then I was fine. And I've watched the video of it. And I'm like, I can't believe. <laughs> like, why did I think that was a good idea? <laughs> why? Exactly. But it, but it worked out okay. <laughs> so you actually, it worked. Like, you, you got your punchlines out. Yeah. Wow. Credit to and you. And I think what it did was in those moments, like, sometimes sometimes I'll finish a punchline and, and I won't get the reaction I expected. So then I'm kind of like, oh, shit, what was I going to do next? Or people will laugh more than I thought they would. And then I have to, like, wait. And then I'm like, oh, hang on. What was I doing? And I could almost like see myself doing that, but that worked as well. It was yeah. like, because it let the audience go, like they'd be like, ha ha, that was funny. And then they'd look at my face and be like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is even funnier because she's going to go, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is, I just cannot do that. <laughs> I would not be able to take a pill and talk. I just, I would chew and just look around. But I feel like there's a danger of me going, well, that worked. I was really funny. And then I'm just going to become one of those terrible, like, drug addict comedians who like yes. and it was such a shame she had so much potential and then she, she just kept getting high <laughs> but she got five amazing albums <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm gonna be robbie williams yeah robin williams not robbie williams <laughs> yeah robin <laughs> no. um so you've got a show coming up at the butterfly club i've got to try and get this podcast out before you then, like so people weeks, can some come and, and see weeks. you yeah so it's at the Butterfly Club, right? Yeah. It starts on the 31st of June, runs, no, 31st of May runs to the 5th of June. Yep. And it's called Unbridled and it's about, uh, it's a it's a celebration of what happens after divorce. So it's like acknowledging that the whole process is horrible and yes, no one gets married. Yes, but every day gets better. But when you're at the other side, yeah. Yeah. It's good. 17 years? 17 years, nearly 20. It was a week shy of us being together 20 years when, when I kicked him out. Well, you kicked him out. Well, I mean, he wanted to go. He just wouldn't leave. Oh, fuck. <laughs> He'd left. He'd left in all senses other than physically. So when you're married for 17 years, how many of those years were awesome? And if you could go back in time and end it, when would you have ended it? Like tw year 12? Year That's, 11? Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if you did that with the yeah, seven-year oh, yeah. relationship. I, I, I started doing this like I would be working on percentages. Okay, so was it like 80% good? Was it 80% good 80% of the time? Like I'm 
I was calculating, trying to make sense of why I had stayed so long, or you know, like because I'd because I'd think back and go, I should have seen this coming. You know, like there was this shit time we only knew each other a few months, and this awful thing happened, or there was that time when we were living in the Caribbean, and that awful thing happened, or like reflecting on all the bad. You it, you unravel it, and one one of the ways you make sense of it is to look at all the negatives and all the bad stuff. I'm like, well, it can't have all been bad. Why why are we together so long? I know that I'd come really close. I thought that things were pretty shit when I was pregnant. And obviously that's like making sense of why I stayed. That's mm. that's why I stayed. Um, and I got postnatal depression and stuff after my first kid. So it's not it's not even like if I could go. Like I feel like if I could go back and tell my younger me, I'd just go, just don't do it. Don't get married. <laughs> Sack it off. Like don't bother. Because it was, yeah, there was a lot of bad. There was a lot of bad continuously. But most of most you know it's like that's what i mean it was like maybe it was like 80 percent good but all of the time not 80 percent of it was good like in a year yeah 20 percent of a year would have been pretty shit could you distill it into a lesson what you got out of it like for me my personal journey was uh, i learned never to give up my dreams of stand up to make the dreams of my partner come true at my expense. Yeah. That's well, where I failed. I, I fell in love so much that I just gave up on me and chased her dreams to make her fucking happy. And in the end, I lost my identity and she fell out with me because she just didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't know who the fuck I was anymore. I was this fucking lemming making her dream come true. I lost me. Yeah. So that was the lesson for me. So now if I ever fall in love again and meet someone, I will always be me. I will be my stand-up, my podcast. This will be me. This is just what I do. And I'm here to help you and facilitate you and be in a relationship with you, blah, blah, blah. But as long as I can still be me. As long as I can be other. me. Yeah. Yeah, that's the well, lesson I learned. Same. And, I, and I, I'm guessing most people that come out of a long-term relationship have an element of that. But, I, yeah, I felt like I dimmed my light. Yes, and I, I wrote, like you, I write poems and I write poems to process things. And I remember I wrote one poem about like a bird and it was like, you know, he'd fallen in love with me because he thought that I was this, you know, beautiful bird that was free. Like I was such a free spirit when we met and da, 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 and then he put me in a cage. Mm. Mm. That's how it felt. And that, yeah, and that's what, you know, the show is about like that. And then just kind of finding your wings again. I've got a big phoenix tattoo. I don't know if you've seen it on my leg. Um, that was my divorce tattoo. Yeah, about Phoenix. And when I had, when I was having it designed, the d tattoo designer was saying, well, she's an artist who does tattoos. She was saying there's two mythologies around Phoenix, and one is there are many, and that's the um, can't remember which way around it is. I think that's the one from like Japanese and Chinese culture, and that there are many, and they rejuvenate, you know, from the ashes of fire. And then the one that comes from like Egyptian and Greek, there's one, and it's a deity, and it's like rooted in the earth with its head in the heavens, and you know all this stuff. And she was like, so which one is it? Which Phoenix are you going to be? And I was like, I'm going to be both. <laughs> mm, nice. I'm going to rise from the ashes and I'm going to be a goddess. And <laughs> yeah. So yeah, just never let anyone put out your light, I guess is the whole thing. Mm. And, and I think the other thing is, I don't know how old you were when you got into that relationship, but I was 22 when I met my husband. Like mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't let anyone put my light out now. I'm, I'm, I know myself better. So your your relationship now you've learned from the past it's a wonderful coexistence. Yeah, yeah, it's bliss. And he's an artist as well. I think that's the other thing is mm. I, I shouldn't have been with someone who wasn't an artist. Well, maybe. But it was good to have an income. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> Two artists in Aldi. Yeah. Till death do you part. <laughs> that's it. Can't have a wedding because you can't afford one. Um, what is postnatal? depression i've heard of it i know what it is but i don't i can't fathom it so i um like i'd had depression as a teenager and i have anxiety you've seen me talk about it in my comedy um but i still didn't recognize it as postnatal depression so i had a friend who had postnatal depression and for her it was like she didn't bond with the baby and she once described to me that she had this moment where she was pressed up against the wall looking at the baby the baby was in the cot and she's pressed up against the wall just like what the fuck do i do like whereas for me Holy i was the opposite i was like so completely absorbed in my baby and i was terrified of the whole world and i couldn't sleep and i just want i just had to watch him breathe because i thought he was gonna die like so i think it was wrapped for me it was probably so you can go my anxiety ways. fed it but yeah i couldn't like i didn't want to cross any roads i just i just yeah life was just really challenging 
and because we hadn't we hadn't lived here long when he was born I, I didn't have regular work and um so I was able to give him so much time and yet still I felt like I was being a terrible mother you know this whole like I'm just fucking it up I'm gonna fuck him up what am I doing I'm doing everything wrong I'm does postnatal depression develop while you're pregnant? No, it's so no. they say it's so to do with the hormones, like post giving birth. So while you're pregnant, you're happy, like wow, there's an awesome cake baking in my oven. I can't wait to meet this baby and blah blah blah. It's all joy. You can get peri perinatal depression, which is while oh, okay. pregnant. Yeah, perinatal. All right. Yep. And then, so you had your baby, and then the depression started. But you went um, the other way, not you went more like smothering the baby, afraid that it was going to stop breathing or. Yeah. I, so I had a really bad childbirth and I think that was, I didn't spot what it was because I'd had depression before and it didn't feel like that. And because I, I was physically very ill for about three months after he was born. I just, I think I just thought all of it was to do with that. And then I went to see like the um, maternal health nurse and she, and she was like, you know, what the fuck's going on with you? And I said, like, I don't, I don't sleep. Why don't you sleep? Because oh, I, like, every time I go to sleep, I wake up worried that he's dead, and I have to go and look at him. And holy shit! And then so anxiety would just wake you up. And then she was like, "I think you might have postnatal depression." And I remember I just burst into tears. I was like, wow. "Oh yeah, that must be what it is." Like, but it hadn't really crossed my mind because to me, I'd, all the stories I'd heard was about not bonding with the baby. Yeah, but you went the other way. Yeah, I never knew that. Yeah, me neither. And how do you? How did you overcome it? How does it go away? So I. I mean, I think in an ideal world, it should go away, you know, when your hormones balance back out and if you don't engage too much with it. I had a lot of, I had years of counselling and that really helped. And then we got into all my stuff and yeah, I, I saw that counsellor for like 11 years. So when you have a baby, your hormones are thrown out of whack. I know what, like my mum keeps bringing it up that I robbed her of calcium. Apparently I took all her calcium out and her teeth fucked up. <laughs> so I was aware of calcium, but also, yeah, like. Your hormones and also you, you don't sleep. So you, towards the end of the pregnancy, you don't sleep very well because you're so uncomfortable and there's this human inside you that needs to come out. Mm. Um, so sleep deprivation, hormone spiking. I mean, even like I breastfed and I was quite skinny, like because the baby's taking all the nutrition, like there's a lot mm. of physical factors. But yeah, I guess, I mean, I already had anxiety. I'd, I'd had bouts of depression before, so I had a propensity. My aunt in England, my dad's sister, she... She was bipolar and had anorexia, and she had a baby that she gave up. This is a really cool story, actually. There's a there's a funny kind of odd happy ending to this story. So she had a baby. She was married, but she still just had no faith in herself as a mum, so she gave the baby up. And then she spent the rest of her life squirreling money away, and she always talked about him, and she always wondered what happened to him. And she, I think she'd contacted social services, but you can't contact them if they haven't, because you don't know, like you don't know if they knew cause he was adopted as a baby. She didn't know if he knew he was adopted. So you can't just go and like write a letter. Hello, I'm your mum. Yeah, don't what? Anyway, her dying wish to my dad was, first of all, it was, I've got 500,000 pounds in a bank account for my son. My dying wish is that you find him. So my dad hired a private detective and found my cousin and gave him this massive windfall. And as I said, like, I've got all these cousins. We've got like this big, warm, lovely family, um, kind of you know, like posh, fairly hippie family. And he'd grown up in this tiny family. He had a sister. I think they were both adopted, just just the mum and the dad and the sister, in somewhere like Milton Keynes. They all still lived within five miles of each other and he worked at the same factory his dad worked at. I think, like, it was all just such a different contrast. And one of my cousins was like, he's going to, like, we're going to welcome him into the fold and it's going to be amazing. She had this, like, fairy tale idea. Anyway, he bought a Lamborghini and crashed it. He <laughs> was fine. But it was like, oh, man. <laughs> We thought you were going to like buy a house and <laughs> want to be in our family. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. That's hilarious. He bought a Lambo and crashed it. Fuck. What a goose. I know. But, you know, he'd had a happy life. He was fine. He just had a win for him. It was just like, oh, cool. 500,000 pounds. And I feel for the mum because every deposit she made was not just monetary, but a thought of depositing love. A thought to that child going, I fucking love you. I don't know where you are, but I'm building, I'm nesting something for you. And it's and so And she lived sad. such a humble life. Like, it's it's really heartbreaking because she lived in this little bungalow. And Fuck. Anyway, it, but it is kind of, it, yeah, I think it's a good story. <laughs> it's a great story. I hope he just had a really good yeah. go of the Lambo before he crashed yeah. it. <laughs> 
drove to Germany and went down the whatever it's called that we were allowed Autobahn. to Autobahn, yeah, is that where you went? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I'd uh, hope so. Yeah, over 300, just <laughs> fuck. Yeah, not somewhere in a roundabout in Piccadilly <laughs> yeah. Circus at 40. Leeds Ring Road. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Uh, we have to wrap this up, but uh, one more time, give a plug your show. It's at the Butterfly Club and it starts 31 May. Yep, it's called Unbridled. And you're also writing a one-hour show, which you're going to do in the fringe. Yep, called Disgraceful, as in Lucy Best is Disgraceful. And just a little summary of that show. I love um, the title, by the way. Like, uh, starting out, shit. continuing, and aging disgracefully. Lovely. Lucy Best, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Johnny. Appreciate it.